Good morning, Taproot. My name is Spencer, and I'll be reading the Word of God for us today. When I finish reading, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and as a church, we will prayerfully respond with, speak, Lord, your servants here. Today we're reading Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and a large crowd followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command, to give, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so, who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. Speak, Lord, let your servants hear. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, um, thank you for today. Thank you just for the gathering. Um, for the community before us. And I just consider in light of this passage, what's really sticking out to me is just right at the end there, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Um, to think of ourselves that we are first primarily brothers and sisters to each other and with each other, with you as our great father. May all we do be ultimately for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and as we consider singleness or consider marriage um, and just the, the in-between of that, whether we be engaged, headed towards marriage, um, but still in some singleness um, or even just uh, in singleness now, and, and that may be our, our path through life. Um, and may we just continue to look at each other as brother and sister, brother and sister primarily for the sake of the kingdom, um, just for your glory. So God, may we rest in that today. Spirit, open the eyes of our heart just to receive, um, even if we may not be in the season of singleness and we're a married people, um, we were once single and we are able to empathize and be with our brothers and sisters, ultimately, primarily as, uh, as that. So be with us as a community and a church today. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Spencer. Good morning, family. How are we? Yeah? We're jamming this morning. It's exciting. Uh, if you're a guest with us, welcome to Taproot Church. Uh, my name is Mike, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're, happy to, we're happy to have you with us. As a church, we exist to know Jesus and make him known, so that's our hope, our desire, our prayer always. Uh, we have been uh, working through the gospel of Matthew, and we find ourselves obviously in Matthew chapter 19, and uh, we're kind of slowing down here and taking a few weeks to work through the topics of marriage and divorce and singleness and sexuality. And so we've already covered uh, kind of the overview of the text in regards to marriage, uh, last week, Pastor Will did a great job uh, going over the really challenging topic of divorce. I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that, to go on to our website or our podcast and uh, do listen to that. I thought he treated it just really well, uh, really carefully, and so super thankful for that. 
next, next Sunday, uh, when we have no kids in here, we'll talk about uh, good things. <laughs> this morning, we're talking about good things as well. Uh, we're going to be looking at the topic of, of singleness, and so we've obviously titled uh, the sermon after this question that the disciples ask of Jesus, is it better not to marry? Um, just, a, just by way of reminder to help keep us you know, oriented around what's going on here, uh, let's remember that the issue at hand here is that the Pharisees um, approach Jesus. Jesus says he's on his way towards Jerusalem. He'll no longer find himself uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. He's heading towards Jerusalem. Pharisees confront him, and they ask him a question regarding divorce. And remember, again, they're just trying to trap Jesus. They're trying uh, to get him to say something that will essentially just lead to his own demise. They're trying to get people to become so irate towards him uh, that they'll destroy him instead of them having to do it themselves. And so they ask this question regarding divorce. Is it permissible uh, or, is it, is, or are we allowed to divorce our wives for any cause? Focusing on a, a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And what Jesus does is genius. He just completely avoids their question uh, and answers it by going back to the creation story. And so what Jesus does is he, he roots this marriage relationship in creation, and in doing that, he presents us with the ideal. So, so in going back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Jesus gives to us the ideal of what marriage is to look like, how God designed it, and that is that it is a one flesh union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That's it. Anything outside of that is, is not the ideal. Now, the good news of the gospel is that, uh, that, that Jesus has paid for the penalty of, of our sins and our rebellion, and there is redemption and restoration to be had in any and all of our stories. Because we all know that in some way, shape, or form, not a single one of us in here is fitting into the ideal. I love how, how Will highlighted that last week, that the, the word that Jesus uses for sexual immorality is porneia, and, and really what that word does is it just, it condemns every single one of us as guilty of falling outside of the ideal, but it still stands to be the reality that this is what Jesus teaches marriage to look like, but of course we know that sin has wrecked everything. And so therefore, Jesus talked about divorce. And what we saw last week is that divorce is a concession. It was a concession allowed by Moses, not commanded by Moses, a concession allowed by Moses, a concession allowed by Jesus and Paul as well. But divorce is never the ideal. Divorce is never the desire for disciples of Jesus. And divorce is never the conclusion that we are to jump to first. Okay? In Christian marriage, and, and, and that's essential for us to understand, in Christian marriage, as followers of Jesus, we don't expect marriage in the world around us to look the same as it is supposed to for disciples of Jesus. As disciples, we do things differently. It's part of what sets us apart. And so what we see is that in the context of Christian marriage, we don't look for ways out. We look for ways to stay committed. Okay? That's where we've been. But now we come to this question. What about the single people? Right. Now, that might be a, a funny question. Some of you might be looking around right now thinking, do we have any single people? I see lots of kids, lots of families. <laughs> what are we doing here? And the truth is, is there's numerous single people in here this morning, right? Amen? Single people? Come on. <laughs> All right. One of you is excited. That's awesome. <laughs> I, may, I, I wrote a whole sermon for you, so I hope more of you are excited. <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you what, this, this sermon has been the most challenging one. I've been married since I was 19, uh, so my single experience is, like, super limited. Uh, but this is also, I had so much information uh, to try to, to sort through and kind of sift out. Uh, we'll see how well I did. Um, yeah, so what about the single people? Let's, let's just face this reality. We, the American church, often don't quite know what to do with single people. Yeah? We are not sure how to handle them, as if there's some sort of enigma. We assume they have a lot of time on their hands. They live an easier life all by themselves. 
And at the end of the day, we just hope they'll watch our kids. <laughs> I'm just being honest. And then, and, and then if, if, uh, if we interact with them, this is funny how I'm talking about single people right now, I know. <laughs> if we interact with them, we tend to just want them to get married, right? Like, it's, it's kind of this mentality of like, oh, poor single person. I, some, someday, someday, the one will come, someday. And so there's kind of just this like, man, they're, they're, they're somehow, some way just living this poor life. Right? We don't know where to categorize them. But what we see in our text and what we see in Scripture uh, as a whole in the New Testament in particular, is that Jesus has a different perspective on singleness. And so this is what we're looking at this morning. And so here's, here's the main idea that I want to get across to us this morning. We're going to start with this. We're going to come back to this as well. Singleness is not a concession. Okay, hear that. Singleness is not a concession. It is a valid and valuable way to live a life of flourishing as a disciple of Jesus in the community of Jesus. Okay? And I, I want us to hear this, and I want us to understand this as a community, regardless of what our relationship status is. We are to be understanding ourselves as members of one family, right? the church, and so in light of that, it, it helps us to understand how we are to relate to one another. And it helps us who are not single to understand how we're to view those who are single. And rather than being confused or perplexed or seeing them as available babysitters, we're to understand them. And, and don't get me wrong, the babysitting thing is awesome, and we hope that you'll continue, okay? <sighs> they're, they're, they are a valid and valuable part of our community, and so I want us to keep this in mind as we work through this text this morning. So uh, we're going to work through this uh, with three kind of points, just trying to follow the framework here of, of how Jesus works this out. Okay? So number one, better not to marry. Or as a question, is it, is it better not to marry? Look at, look at the text with me there in verse 10. Uh, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And we'll stop right there. And then I'll just say this, marriage is hard. Amen? Agreed? Agreed. Marriage is really, really hard. And I'd be willing to bet that for every single one of us in here who have been married for longer than 24 hours, we've come to that conclusion and we've had moments within our marriage where we're like, man, this is hard. How are we going to continue? How are we going to press forward? This is not what I expected. And I think this is the reality that Jesus is addressing. I think this is the question or the observation that his disciples are making, right? They, they have just listened to Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, and the conclusion is, the, the, the observation is that it's hard. The conclusion of the disciples then is that if it's this difficult, we should probably just not get married. Right? Like, like, hear that framework here. Jesus has just taught on, on, on marriage and divorce, and the only way that they can conclude is like, I can't do this. This is incredibly difficult. We'd better just not get married. Interesting, Paul deals with the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Right? It seems that the disciples' perspective was that marriage wasn't worth entering into unless there was some easy way out. That's the challenge that they're kind of wrestling with. And, and the problem that they have is that Jesus just took that away from them. Okay, so, so imagine the framework like this. The disciples, they were under the impression that they had the ability to enter into marriage with sort of a, a, a backdoor out. And Jesus just says, no, the backdoor is closed. 
What Christian marriage looks like is this lifelong commitment through thick and thin, through better or worse. And they're panicking. Right? Now, I think we have to understand some of the distinctions in, in marriage in, in Jesus' day and our day. We understand marriage to be um, a civil union. Right? A civil contract. That's kind of how the, the law of our land has defined marriage. You go to the courthouse, you have to get a license. The license is what kind of sort of validates your marriage. We can debate about that all day long. I think that the scriptures hold us to a higher standard. And I think that's very important for us to, to understand. Marriage, though, did not work like this in Jesus' day. Remember, Will touched base on this last week. Marriage in Jesus' day, remember, was arranged. Right? It was all it was all arranged. Uh, how, how many of y'all seen The Fiddler on the Roof? It was like that, just less dramatic. <laughs> Probably, maybe that much thing. I don't know. But there was, like, legitimately, there were matchmakers, the whole thing, it was all arranged. And what it primarily was, and this is crazy, it was, it was primarily a financial transaction between two families. It was, it was, it was the prerogative of the fathers to determine that their son and their daughter would be a good match together, and then to put forth the proper finances to bring these two families together that would then enable them both to be more financially prosperous. That's how it worked. And so it seems to me that, that culturally, the disciples are they're wrestling with this. They, they, they seem to not have any... I use, the, I use the word safe loosely here, but safe way to enter into marriage and also get out just in case it goes really wrong. Here's how Craig Blomberg um, puts it, or sorry, not Blomberg, Craig Keener, he says this. He says, quote, to marry without the possibility of divorce in a painful marriage seemed worse than not marrying at all. So, so it's kind of where their, their headspace seems to be. Now, is this not, in many ways, the same way that marriage is treated today? We, we live in the land of no-fault divorce, where irreconcilable differences tend to dominate, or we, we have this idea of falling out of love, or we live with this reality that they are a different person than who I married. And here's the thing. This is precisely what Jesus wants them and wants us to observe, he wants us to be fully aware of the reality that this commitment, the covenant of marriage is supposed to be taken with utmost seriousness with no desire for an opt-out clause in our back pockets. He continues to, to maintain and hold on to the ideal. Right? And so I think what I want to ask here is this. What are... What are your expectations in marriage? Right. I think we talked about this just a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but I think one of the, one of the things that has the tendency to, to wreck our marriages the most are misplaced expectations, right? um, or even more pointedly, just selfish and unrealistic expectations, if we, if we take selfish and unrealistic expectations into our marriage, it will not last. Commitment will persist so long as the other stays the way that, they wa that we want them to. But this is unrealistic. Just, just so we know. Uh, oh, here. One of my uh, favorite books on marriage is by Tim Keller. Uh, I think it's just called Marriage. Is that what it's called? No, the meaning of marriage. Thank you. The meaning of marriage. And in, in, in that book, he kind of talks about just him and his wife. And he, he talks about one point where his wife says that she has been married to seven different men. And all of them are him. Right. My wife is down here on the front row smiling like seven. I've been like 20. <laughs> But that's the, that's the reality that we enter into, right? It, it, it can't be these, these feelings or like floating in the air desires that are going to drive us or maintain us. It is this reality of a covenantal commitment to one another, right? 
that, that we are going to commit in marriage for a lifetime through thick and thin, better or worse. There's a reason that we say that. And so this is, again, getting back to this ideal. And, and essentially what Jesus concludes with is this, is if that if you can't handle this, then don't do it. Right? So, so for those of you who are not married in here, right, this is where Jesus begins to really speak to you. And he wants you to consider this reality, this level of commitment, like the, this very real reality of being in it for the long haul, through thick and thin, for better or worse, through the ups and downs, knowing that you're going to be hurt, disappointed, let down, wounded, over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. And then from there, he moves on to give us a larger picture of what then single life looks like. But ask that question. If you can't handle this, then Jesus would say, don't do it. And here, I want to say this too. If you're already in it, and this isn't your perspective, I think you should start praying. Right? Like, if your, if your perspective is one of trying to look for ways out, and, I, and I, I, again, I understand the circumstances, okay? And I know that there are numerous ways in which we can say, yeah, but. Right? To which I would just say, yeah, but have we, have we been driven to our knees? Right? And, and sought out wisdom in the context of your church, family, and community. Right? It's a, it is a high calling that Jesus is talking about. So number two. Number two, for those to whom it is given, look again with me at the text here, verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this Receive it. So again, notably in this text, see how Jesus doesn't disagree with his disciples. Jesus doesn't seek to correct them and say, oh, no, 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 you're, you're misunderstanding this whole marriage thing. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. No, he agrees. I think he agrees with them. I, th- I think he says, yes, you guys, have, you guys have made a legitimate observation here about marriage. And you legitimately need to be asking this question. I, I, I can't help but wonder if Jesus is saying that marriage is hard, but can singleness be even harder? Now, I don't think, I don't think that Jesus is comparing. And, and, and here's, I don't want us to do this either. I think our tendency is to com- try to, for some reason... We like to try to compare life circumstances and try to decipher whose is harder, right? Who, who has it worse? I mean, better. The single people or the married people, right? And we, we try to make these comparisons and then in some unhealthy way just kind of become infatuated with what we're not experiencing, But what Jesus wants to do here is I think he wants to show us that each has its own set of gifts and challenges. So hear that. As, as married people and as singled people, single people, each of those ways of living are a gift. They're, they're good. They are valid. They are valuable but each also brings with it its own set of difficulties and trials and suffering, so to speak, right? And so it's, it's not a comparison. It's just a reality. And Jesus wants us to understand how to live in the reality. Furthermore, I think it's important here to highlight that Jesus himself was, is, was single, 
Like if, if, ever, if ever any of you in here who are single this morning, or if ever any of you who are not single look down upon single people, you, you need to be, we need to be reminded of the reality of Jesus, who lived the entirety of his life as a celibate, single man, devoted entirely to doing what his father desired. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is our hope. And Jesus is the example in this. Yeah? And so if you're, if you're in a single way of living right now and you're just kind of like, man, this is really frustrating or like, I, I would just say, understand that you're in good company. Like your Lord lived his life this way. Okay? And so it's not to be looked down upon. Right? And, I, and I want us to know this too, that in his singleness, we can know that Jesus wrestled with all of the realities that a single human wrestles with. He, he wasn't... Um, avoiding the temptations just because he was perfectly 100% God. He experienced all of the temptations that every single one of us as humans experience on a regular basis, yet he did so without sin. And so Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the example. Now, let's talk for a little bit about the, the gift of singleness, the gift of singleness. I don't know, I don't know how that falls on you, if you're like a single person, you're like the gift. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Or you're single, you're like, yes, that's amazing. I love this gift. Let's, let's get into to what's being said here. Um, Jesus seems to make clear here that, he, or he does make clear, that this isn't for everyone, right? In verse 11, he highlights that not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So what is, what is being given? Uh, well, most of the commentators seem to conclude that there's some gift being given in relation to remaining a single person. And I think we can confirm this because Paul picks up on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as well. Okay, so turn with me really quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul, in, in verses 1 through 5 there, he works through what really was just absolutely like a revolutionary statement regarding marriage. Right? In, in, in verses one through five, Paul talks about um, the husband and wife and their rights, so to speak. And he says that, he essentially just says that you are not your own. Right? Paul's whole conclusion to that is that the wife gives to her husband all that is hers, and the husband gives to the wife all that is his. That was completely unheard of in Paul's day. That would, that would, that would have not made a lot of sense to his first audience. Yeah? Then he goes on here in verse 6, and he says this. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of Another, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul is, we know from this, he's a single man. And Paul seems to recognize this singleness as a gift. Now, in talking about uh, the gift, we need to understand it not so much as a present, <laughs> like, oh, here's a nice little gift for you, right? but rather, um, I think we need to see it as a, a capability made possible by the Spirit. Okay? When Paul talks about singleness as a gift, I think he's talking about it as a capability made possible by the Spirit and or, or both, it's a reality that is sustained by the Spirit. Okay? So in, in, in being a gift, being a gift it's, it's, it's a gift given by the Spirit and also sustained by the Spirit. Here's, here's what Bruner says in light of this. I thought this was helpful. He says that if Jesus looked at all giftedness in at, 
least this broad a way, then Jesus' view of God's charismatic gifting is wider than ours usually is. Gifts are not restricted to an inner spiritual or psychological department in human life, but are also outer physical and sociological realities. Gifts are not as personal as aptitudes and decisions, but are also as physical, sorry, I messed up there. Gifts are not only as personal as aptitudes and decisions, but are also as physical as genes and as social as experience. So Bruner, essentially, he broadens this understanding of what gifting is. And it's not just like the spiritual inner experience, but it's incorporated into the whole of a person's life and existence, right? And and that plays itself out in, in numerous ways, But regardless of how we understand it, I think what we need to get is the need for the spirit in singleness and also in marriage. Like regardless of how we understand what this so-called gift is, whether you be gifted with singleness or gifted with marriage, we need to understand that we're to be a people who operate in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Right? Like, Like, how many of you know, like, yeah, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us in our marriage? Yeah, amen? (laughs) If ever you try to do that on your own, it doesn't go very well, right? And so this is just the the reality that Paul and Jesus want to lay out in regards to this gift, okay? So what then, if you have the gift, what then does the path to singleness look like, okay? The path to singleness. Oh, that's wrong. I wanted to go back here. Okay. There are a couple of things for us to see here. And the first is this, is that Jesus once again lifts up those of lower status in his culture. Uh, It's really interesting that Jesus takes eunuchs and uses them as his example. Because in doing so, Jesus is once again going against the grain of everything that was common and normal in his culture. Eunuchs would not have been used as spiritual examples for anything. And so Jesus, he once again lifts up those of lower status in his culture. Uh, So just to have an understanding here of of eunuchs, um, it's, it's interesting to say the least. You can do more research on your own. Eunuchs played a special role to, in, in particular to royalty uh, because of their inability to have sexual relations. Okay? So, for example, uh, in Acts chapter 8, right, you see the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and he was, he was, um, was it the Queen of Sheba or was it Candace? Candace, right? He was, he was a eunuch for her royal whatever, basically. And the whole idea was this, is that these Primarily, men were safe to keep around a king's harem, in essence, because they were unable to do anything about it, And what Jesus does is he takes these despised people, like these sexually despised people, and brings them in and exemplifies them. It's really interesting. Remember, a while back, he did the same thing with children. Children were that... I mean, children had no prominence at all. And yet Jesus puts a child in his midst and says, if you want to enter the kingdom, become like a child. And so once, once again, the person who's held up as exemplary for God's kingdom is the person that most people tend to forget about. The person that most people want to, don't quite know what to do with. Right? We have to be reminded also that, that eunuchs, they were outsiders in the Jewish world and never able to enter the temple, right? So they, they lacked the ability, as everyone else, to, to be able to enter into God's presence. Okay? Now, what's interesting about what Jesus does here is he, I think he broadens the term to go beyond just the literal eunuch. Okay? And he does this by, by showing kind of these, these life situations. And so what we see here is that a eunuch in what Jesus is saying is not just the lack or dysfunction of sexuality, it is also a choice to be made, is what Jesus is getting at. So then what we have here is this, um, just a complete reorientation around what is valuable in the kingdom, 
so again, I think Bruner, I don't remember if I have this one or not. I do. Bruner says this. He says, quote, Jesus' positive teaching on celibacy here in Matthew opposes tradition. Jesus has deep respect for single life. Jesus' words free single people from the odium of having gone against God's creation will of marriage. In other words, what Jesus continues to do and what he always does over and over and over again, it says, it says no, you have, a, you have a place in this kingdom. You have a place in this family. And it is valuable. It is valid. It is legitimate. Right? You are not a less than human in some way, shape, or form. So then what does the pathway to singleness look like? Uh, Jesus lays out for us three points, because he's a good preacher. (laughs) So here's here's the pathway. Jesus essentially is out. You have from birth, you have at the hands of humanity, and you have by choice. Uh, Kind of like just these three broad categories for us to understand. So we're going to spend a little bit of time here. I hope I do well. Um, first, from birth. In, in this statement, I think Jesus is covering loads of complexity. Uh, I, don't, I don't know all of the historical details of what Jesus had in mind when he said that some are born eunuchs. But I can only imagine that it was a loaded statement with loads of complexity. It's, you know, it's interesting. We, let's see. We, I think, in here would agree that we are experiencing a time in history where there is a lot of confusion around sexuality, right? Some of you are like, that's the understatement of the year. I know, bear with me. I want us to know that not much has changed in this regard, though, throughout the course of history. Uh, 2,000 plus years ago, in Jesus' day and age, culture, Greco-Roman world, it was crazy. Just, it was crazy, just so, just so we're clear. Like, uh, in some ways, it, it makes what we're experiencing now pale in comparison. Okay? So... Jesus wasn't living in some sort of like prudish, just morally pure and upright world. There was extreme sexual brokenness all around him. And so Jesus speaks into this reality. And so when he says that there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs from birth, I think he's covering that load of complexity. And so on the one hand, you would have those who were just born with dysfunctional sexual organs in some way, shape, or form. I think that's in part what Jesus is covering here. Um, Those who were born as or are born as uh, hermaphrodites, having both male and female sexual organs and characteristics. That should like challenge us as, as a category. I think in this, Jesus would also be covering the complexity of those who are born same-sex attracted. Now, I think this is something that we really need to learn how to press into. I think we have a tendency as the church, have had a tendency as the church, to kind of reject the um, born this way mantra uh, to... And, and, and try to inform it and say, no, you weren't. You're, you're just a sinner and you need to repent and turn to Jesus and it will all be fixed. I think that that's a bit of a broad brush. I think it's more complex than that. I think what, what Jesus does here by mentioning this by birth scenario is, is I think he's teaching us as disciples of Jesus to think and act with grace and wisdom in a sexually broken world. Um, Just so we're clear, it's been very broken this way since Genesis 3. 
And I don't know if any of you have read the Old Testament recently. It's crazy. Right? It's funny, I was, I was uh, down in California a couple weeks ago at class, and they, we, were, they were, we were having this conversation about where to help people start reading the Bible. And not a single person said Genesis. <laughs> right? Because some of you have read Genesis, and you're like, that's, that's going to cause a lot of confusion. <laughs> it was actually interesting. Their, their suggestion was Ecclesiastes. I found that very intriguing. Anyways. I think Jesus wants us to understand and learn how to, with grace and wisdom, navigate a sexually broken world. That, in a world that includes things that make us very uncomfortable, right? It tends to be that when people are not like us or have a different experience than us or have made different life choices than us, whether they like those decisions or not, we get very uncomfortable. And Jesus wants us to learn how to enter into that discomfort. Jesus wants us to understand that sexuality is incredibly complex. And that instead of writing people off in their or in our own sexual brokenness, you should include yourself in this, we need to learn to step into the mess of it. We need to learn how to step into the mess. Now, I'm not saying that we disregard God's design. I'm not saying that at all. I very much affirm the reality of how God designed human sexuality to be. But we understand also the brokenness, right? And therefore, it is our responsibility as disciples to learn to understand the realities and complexities in other words, as we look at the culture around us, it, on one hand, it's terrifying. Uh, I, numerous times I've had conversations with my wife where it's like, man, I just, there's so many ways in which I hate the world as it is now. But then I look at history, I'm like, oh, it's kind of always been like this too. It just shows up a little bit differently. And as disciples of Jesus, it's not our job to stick our heads in the sand, or, or even to just throw out, well, you just need to repent and it'll all be fixed. But rather to engage fully into the mess. And so just, I'm, I'm really thankful right now for several people who have helped me try to navigate this. People like uh, Sam, Sam Albury. Uh, Sam Albury is a, a pastor and an author in uh, the UK, in London, I think. And he's written uh, a few books, uh, just has a lot of wisdom on this whole, whole subject. And he's, he's lived his entire life as a, a man who's only experienced same-sex attraction. Only. Uh, he, he, he shares his story about how he, he wanted to be married. He just found this one problem. He wasn't attracted to women at all. And so he has continued to persist in celibacy as a single man devoted to Jesus. It's beautiful. Another, another person that's helpful, I think, is Jackie Hill Perry. Uh, I think she preaches better than almost anyone I've ever listened to. Anytime I listen to Jackie Hill Perry preach, I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish she could come here. Like she just, she just man, it's, and, and, and she too has had just extreme experiences of, of, of sexual brokenness and has much wisdom. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin is another voice right now that has become more and more prominent in this regard. Uh, she wrote a little book called The Secular Creed, um, which, is, which is quite helpful. Uh, and then I'm really thankful for Preston Sprinkle, who's done a ton of great work in this area, teaching the church how to think with, with wisdom and soundness of mind and enter into the mess of sexual brokenness. And so here's, here's my question. Can Taproot Church be a church who holds the tension of compassion and conviction? Can we be a safe space for the sexually broken, both heterosexual and homosexual, to work out their stuff? I sure hope so, because if we are not, I don't know what we're doing. Because anything else is not the way of Jesus. And I think too often this is a space in which we are unwilling to pull the log out of our own eye. 
And Jesus would invite us to pull the log out of our own eye. And he would invite us to be a people who maintain conviction, absolutely, (laughs) absolutely, but also to be compassionate in regards to the sexual brokenness that humanity experiences, many of whom have experienced it from birth, from birth. The second pathway that Jesus mentions here is at the hands of humanity, the hands of humanity. Um, In this I think what Jesus is doing, again, I think he's covering layers of complexity. I think he is also, in this instance, covering layers of abuse. Because what Jesus does is he's, he's referencing that many eunuchs were literally made so at the hands of men. I'll let you connect that yourselves. But I think this carries over then also into just traumatic experiences in general. That I think most of us probably know people who have experienced trauma, be it through divorce or abuse or just familial trauma, who are, who are unwilling to enter into marriage because of what their experience has been. Right? And so there's this, this, this trauma that exists that they're, by God's grace, working through, but don't want to then engage and step into this space of marriage again. And Jesus talks about this being a valid pathway into singleness, a painful one, but a valid one, right? Another aspect within this would also be life circumstances, right? That it might very well be that various life circumstances just simply prevent someone from getting married. This is okay, right? Jesus wants to understand that this is okay, right? But again, The question for us, church, is will we have compassion and will we enter into people's stories? And so I just just want us to think, especially for those of us here who are married, who have families, how how are we entering into or how are we inviting the single people in Taproot into our lives or how are we getting into their lives? How are, we, how are we listening to those stories and seeing them as someone other than someone that we need to find a spouse for? But, but seeing them and valuing them as an actual human, an image bearer. This, I mean, this has to go a long way for us. I think, I think this is what helps us to navigate the, the sexual brokenness in our world is we have to understand that people, people are not their sin. Right? People are made in the image of God. And so therefore we enter into that story. We enter into that mess, whatever it may be. So we have from birth at the hands of humanity. The third, third is by choice. Right? And so in this, Jesus is, is simply saying that there are some who will make the choice for one reason or another, to live single and celibate lives. And specifically, he highlights here, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I love how Spencer uh, honed in on that as he prayed. And I love how this also just brings us around to what the overall theme of Matthew has been, right? That Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And he's inviting these humans in their sexual brokenness and experience to be people who are set apart for the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is massive, what Jesus is doing here. Right? And so then he's also offering up here this reality that for some, you need to make the choice to remain single. Right? Uh, and in this, I think what Jesus is simply saying is that marriage is not everything. Right? Marriage is not everything. Marriage will not completely and fully, not even close, satisfy all of your desires, right? And so this, this, is, this then takes us to our final point here. And this, this point, as much as it is this morning for those in here who are single, it's also, it's for everyone, right? That as disciples of Jesus what marks our lives, what sets us apart is that everything is being reoriented around this kingdom. 
Everything is being reoriented around this third way of living. That is the kingdom of heaven. Right? And so how do, we, how do we work out these complexities that Jesus brings to us Regardless of marital status or sexual orientation, we need to reorient our lives, our understanding of relationships and community around the kingdom. Uh, I think, oh my word, really? Siri. (laughs) Uh, This is Craig Blomberg. I think he kind of does a good job of summarizing this here. He says, (laughs) this is funny. If many Roman Catholics have overly exalted celibacy as an ideal... Most Protestants have drastically undervalued it. Christian singles need much more support from their married friends and their churches who must value them as equally significant members of the body of Christ. In a society that constantly pressures people into hasty marriages, the church desperately needs to encourage all who sense God leading them to remain single for however long or short a period of time to remain faithful to his guidance. So just a, a few points for us to, to think through here as we, as we wrap this up, okay? Like I already said, what Jesus is teaching is that marriage and sex are not everything. I think this is, um, yeah, you can live a flourishing life as a celibate human that is not marked by loneliness, And we also need to understand this, just in case anyone's wondering, marriage will not solve your loneliness and intimacy issues, right? If it's not put in its proper place, it will not solve them. It will, it will likely only make them worse, right? and, and, I, and I would say for anyone in here who's, who's married, we would, we, I think we'd probably agree with that, right? You're like, I don't know if I should raise my hand or not, Yeah? If, if our marriage is not oriented around the kingdom, then we're going to put pressure on our spouse in ways that they can't handle. If we're looking to, to that person to satisfy our, our loneliness issues, our intimacy issues, we're looking in the wrong space. We're looking to the wrong person. And so it would go for those who are single. You need to know, regardless of what your experience is right now, that getting married will not, it will not solve it. Uh, you'll get married to that person and you'll wake up to them the morning of your honeymoon and you'll be like, whoa, this is different. Stinky breath, messed, like, it will not be fully satisfying. And so here's, here's, here's where this is challenging for us, is that our, our culture idolizes sexual activity and romantic partnership. And anything apart from this is seen as a huge sacrifice. But what we have to understand is that the sacrifice was already made by Jesus so that we can actually live lives in obedience. Uh, I I had a conversation once with someone who was was really wrestling with the the idea that they, they might need to persist in a life of celibacy or that that would be a, a better alternative for them. And the question that they, that they put before me was, why would God withhold this thing from me? And it's interesting. I, I think it's a valid question. I don't, I don't want to devalue the question. But I do also want to say that the question puts sex in the wrong place. It, it puts it as an ultimate thing that they're looking to to, to be ultimately satisfying. And we'll only find out that that's not the case. And so we reorient these things under and around the kingdom, understanding that sexual activity and romantic partnership are not everything. They're not to be idolized. They're not what we're to look for to get everything that we need. Uh, there is a, a gal. Her name is Danielle. I don't know how to say her last name. It's Trey Week, T-R-E-W-E-E-K. And she is an Australian woman who is single. And she, has, she, has, she is like the epitome of a woman who is, who is a chosen singleness for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and she has a, a website uh, that goes by her name. She has a book that's coming out here in the next year. Uh, I would highly recommend reading her stuff. I found it to be very helpful. Uh, she says this, and I thought it's just so insightful. 
some of the things that she has to say in this regard. She says, quote, chaste Christian singleness, listen to this, i.e., saying no to having sex with someone we are not married to, making wise and godly decisions about not marrying someone, Scripture says, we ought or must not marry, is honorable, dignified, and worthy of respect. It's an honorable, dignified, worthy way of living life. And she goes on, and she says this. She says, that the cost of celibacy, therefore, lies not in the giving up of something which we hold dear to our identity, but in the giving up of sin. Saying no to sex with someone they are not married to can be a hard, painful, and perhaps even excruciating thing for a sinner to do. Such is the alluring power of sin. However, if we are to denote such a giving up as sacrificial, then we must recognize that the only thing being sacrificed is that which leads to death, to the forfeiture of our lives. Surely the giving up of such a thing is not truly a sacrifice, let alone a noble one. The embracing of sexual celibacy for anyone who is not currently married is not a call to a gallant self-denial. Rather, it is a call to ordinary Christian obedience to that which is most beneficial for the single person themselves, most loving toward others, and most honoring of God. I've never heard anything that good in this regard. I, I think that this statement captures beautifully what it looks like to to orient marriage and singleness and sex in light of the kingdom. And 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 the beauty of this the simple call to just to simple obedience, ordinary Christian obedience. And I love how she concludes it there, right? With that which is most beneficial for the single person themselves, most loving toward others, and most honoring to God. Is that the life that you desire to live, that we desire to live. That is the life that we've certainly been called to as disciples. Now, on a practical note, um, I just want to say this. If you're single, uh, or here, here, let's do this. The question comes up often with like uh, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about burning with passion. What, is, what does it mean to burn with passion? Uh, well, it's not, it's not necessarily... Um, in Paul's context, it wasn't that someone wanted something that they couldn't have. It's that they were participating in ways that they shouldn't have been. Does that make sense? So Paul's addressing a church in Corinth who, um, in many ways, just they worship sex. And what was happening is that there were many singles in the Corinthian church who were having sex with someone that they should not have been. And Paul is saying, instead of continuing to burn with passion, he's saying you ought to pursue marriage. Okay? So it's, it's, it's not just kind of this thing that's off in the distance that I hope to get someday. In order to satisfy my burning passion, I'm just going to go and pursue marriage. Okay? Now, at the same time, um, I think what Paul wants us to understand, what Jesus would want us to understand, that if you are single and wanting to pursue marriage, that's fine and dandy, but there are risks that you're going to have to take. You're going to have to get out there. You're going to have to know that you're going to be let down, but don't believe the lie that if you do everything right, then God will somehow bless you with the perfect person. I think we tend to believe a lot of prosperity garbage in regards to relationships and marriage. Because it's, it's kind of this like, well, I did everything right, but my marriage is dot, dot, dot. I did everything right, but I can't, I, why won't I have a spouse? Right? It's, it's a miscategorization. It's, it's a misplacement of things. Right? And so again, Jesus wants us to, to place it under his kingdom and, and to entrust it to him. Right? Um, so marriage and sex are not everything. Uh, second... Friendship is a reality that needs to be recovered. Friendship is a reality that needs to be recovered. Uh, Culturally, culturally, we have lost sight of the concept of brotherly love, phileo love. And instead, what we've done is we've replaced it and have only understood it in the form of eros, that is erotic love. And so, sadly, C.S. Lewis does this in his book, The Four Loves. 
Uh, so if you want some more detail on, on what this looks like, read C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And, and what he talks about is how, uh, and this was back, I don't know when he wrote The Four Loves. Whenever he wrote it, it was quite a while ago. And he, he made this observation that sadly, we equate any close same-sex relationship with having to become or already is homosexual in some way, shape, or form. That we, we exist in a culture that doesn't, doesn't allow this reality to exist. If you see a man or a man in, in closeness with one another, physical closeness with one another, the assumption is automatically that they're, they're homosexual and vice versa. And these are, I, these are categories that need to be removed or again, reoriented. Right? We need to re... Oh my word, why does this thing keep doing this? Sorry. We need to reorient our minds around love beyond that which is sexual. Men and women can and should have intimate friendships with people of the same sex. Now, I'll be honest, I wish I could speak more into this. I'm really bad at friendship. Like, I... I just, that's just shooting straight. I love, I love being best friends with my wife. I have a really hard time engaging in friendship outside of that. And people keep asking me about how many friends I have or if I have any friends. I'm like, or what is friendship? I'm like, I don't know. I, don't ask. <laughs> I'm working on it. Actually, I have, I have a, a, a guy, a coach, uh, who, well, Cliff, you all know Cliff. Most of you know Cliff. Cliff has asked me that. He's like, what does friendship look like for you? And I was like, I don't know. What does it look like for you, Cliff? And he's like, hmm, that's a really good question. It's like, you're the coach, man. You're supposed to, aren't you supposed to tell me what this looks like? So all that to say, I wish I had more experience or ability to speak into this. I know this, though, that, that we need to understand friendship better than what we do. Right? I, the, the examples that I can think of in Scripture are uh, David and Jonathan as one primary example. Uh, that uh, David tells Jonathan that his love was better than that of a woman. I think that means that they had a pretty close friendship. Uh, Another example would be Jesus and John, the disciple. You have this this picture of of John affectionately, physically laying his head on Jesus' chest, and there's nothing awkward about it. It's just this beautiful picture of close, same-sex friendship. And I, this is just a category that we have to begin reorienting ourselves to, I think, as, as disciples of Jesus. Uh, friendship is a reality that needs to be recovered. Finally, the church is the family. The church is the family. This is where Jesus ultimately wants to take us and Paul too, right? Jesus wants us to understand himself as truly the greater husband, right? that, that Jesus actually is the one who we are to... to learn to be fully satisfied in. That that, that Jesus is the one who actually meets our our deepest needs, our deepest deepest desires, our deepest longings. And and it's not something that comes easily either. It's it's worked out through through practices and and disciplines and living a life of discipleship to Jesus. Right? The answer to our loneliness is not in having a spouse and two and a half kids. It's trusting that God is taking care of us. It's trusting and understanding that the church is the family. And this is what Paul and Jesus both want to get at. In 1 Corinthians 7, I can't remember exactly where, verse 30-something, Paul talks about single people not being anxious. And the idea of, of what he's getting at there is he, he wants them to not be anxious about getting married. He's not, he's not saying that single people aren't going to live anxious-free lives. He's reorienting them around the kingdom and saying, look, live as you are. He says the same thing for married people. He says, live as you are. You don't need to be anxious about getting into this. You don't need to be anxious about getting out of this. You need to delight yourself in Jesus. And so we need to understand that we are part of a new family 
who should be caring for one another. I think this would have been huge in Jesus' and Paul's understanding because it, it was, in many ways, it was, it was essential, it was necessary for a woman to be married, to be cared for. And Jesus and Paul are essentially saying, you, don't, you no longer need to be worried about that because you're part of this new family. You're part of the church family. And so we too are part of this family in which we have to understand that we need one another. Our ability to mutually encourage each other in Christ is not based upon our relationship status. Single people have the freedom to speak into married people's lives and vice versa. Families, we need to invite the singles in and live life with them. Singles, you need to engage with the families. You gotta like, gotta step in, right? Um, some of this I, I stole from a, a podcast that I listened to this week. Uh, it's the, the Love Thy Neighborhood po- podcast. Have y'all, I don't know, I, I find it to be rather enjoyable. Uh, a few weeks ago, they did one on, on singleness. And at the end of it, they interviewed Sam Albury. I already mentioned him. And they kind of just shared a bit of his story. And in it, he talked about how, uh, well, he, he compares uh, the UK and America, and he highlights how Americans have done a really bad job at, at, at propping up singleness as a, a valid way of doing life and ministry, right? Uh, but in the UK, like some of the most prominent names of the church, men like John Stott uh, were single men who loved and followed Jesus as, and, and, and were exemplary. And then what Sam does is he goes into how uh, he's had to wrestle through this himself But then he talks about how his experience in his local church is that he has three or four different house keys to three or four different families in his church. And and his whole point is that they've stepped in in such a way where they've said, we're not just going to tell you that you're you're apart and that we like you and want to hang out with you. We're giving you a house key and we're telling you that you are welcome anytime that you want. Now, I know that's super un-American and you're like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to do that. But I think it, it, it illustrates and gets at the point, right? Like, are we going to understand ourselves as being this family, a, a family of Christ, the way that Jesus would invite us to, okay? Singleness is not a concession. It is a valid and valuable way to live a life of flourishing as a disciple of Jesus in the community of Jesus, Are we functioning or will we function as a community to make this a reality? I think that's what Jesus would call us to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the perfect example in this. Thank you that you have called us to yourself. And I pray that we would live in light of that goodness now and always. I pray that you would help us regardless of whether we're single or married, whatever our status may be relationally, that our lives would be reoriented around your kingdom, that we would delight in obeying you, that we would delight in what you have called us to, and that we would be most satisfied in you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen.